Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, the podcast that is heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue bringing you the outstanding authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how those connections influence and impact their works. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. And I'm so delighted to have author J.V. Hilliard with us today to talk fantasy writing and his debut fantasy novel. It's called The Last Keeper. And if you are a fan of The Lord of the Rings, if you are a fan of George R.R. Martin and all of the works that he has done with uh, Game of Thrones, you're going to want to add this book to your to-be-read pile. And we will talk with Joe uh, here in just a moment to find out uh, about this great book, why he wrote it, and what he has planned for it in the future. Because I'm excited to say that having read the book and having uh, enjoyed it immensely, that it is going to be set up, I believe, for a series going forward. So we'll talk more uh, with JV about that here in just a minute. So JV, welcome to the program. Good to have you on Now Appalachia. Thanks for being with us. Elliot, thank you for having me. I appreciate it and um, uh, looking forward to our discussion. Absolutely. I am as well. I wanted to start off by asking you about the opening line of your prologue, because that really caught my attention from the very beginning. So I wanted to read that and then get your comments on it. Uh, At the very beginning, the prologue says, the blade of betrayal, the sharpest of weapons, is wielded not by your enemies, but by your friends. And that is uh, quoted to Warminster the Mage. So I wanted to ask you about that quote. Why did you put that in the prologue? And who is Warminster the Mage? And and what do we find out about uh, that character in the book? Yeah, sure. So the the quote is pretty simple. And actually, in all of my chapters, I tried to uh, add a quote in the beginning, just to kind of prepare the reader to understand what they're about to see. And in the case of the Blade of Betrayal, I think that that betrayal and redemption are, are big themes will run through not only The Last Keeper, but also this four book series that's known as the Warminster series. And Warminster the Mage, uh, is sort of like the elder mage of the realm, this, this fantasy realm that I've created, and it's named after him. Uh, and there are many other, you know, baronies and duchies and kingdoms and queendoms and, you know, uh, patriarchies within the realm. Uh, but in this case, it's, it's his history uh, that the realm is named for. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the book starts out with a scene with uh, the villain of the book, Great Taurus the Mad, fleeing the cathedral of the watchful eye and a bunch of their knights are chasing him uh and they engage in a battle uh where um there's there's a uh, magic uh and it ends tragically for many people but you know in the case of of the blade it, you know i wanted to leave in the reader's mind is is it that great taurus has betrayed his order of the keepers of the forbidden or did his god betray him or does someone else betray Great Taurus? And I wanted to leave folks uh, confused, but thinking about the theme of betrayal, which I think I've kind of embedded throughout the series. Excellent. And before we get back to, to talking about some of those themes and some of those characteristics, I wanted to ask you 
So JV, before we continue a little further with the with the story, um, tell us a little bit uh, about you. I know you live in Pittsburgh right now. Where are you from originally? Where did you go to school? What do you do when you're not writing? Yeah, so uh, I am from Pittsburgh originally. Uh, I spent some time in D.C. I am a, a federal lobbyist. I work with a lot of technology and defense companies, and I represent their interests in front of Congress, oftentimes in front of departments and agencies of the federal government and on, on occasion in front of the White House uh, on issues that are related to primarily technology development and adoption by the federal government. Uh, and in some instances, uh, policy or regulatory things. But for the most part, you know, my job is to help these folks find money for things like research and development or testing and evaluation of critical technologies that are deployed with, for various uses, whether it's providing for the common defense or promoting the general welfare within the federal government. And so uh, I did that uh, in D.C. for a while and then um, got married, moved back to, uh, to Pittsburgh. My wife and I, um, you know, built our house back here and I still uh, travel to D.C. a couple of days a week when they're in session. Uh, doing that, but I'm a Pittsburgh guy. And if you know anything about Pittsburgh, there's kind of a boomerang effect. A lot of folks leave here when they're younger and eventually come back here to raise families. And I'm one of those people that got caught in the, the, the boomerang. Uh, and, uh, you know, I went to school here locally. I went to the University of Pittsburgh um, and, you know, I had uh, studied political science, as you can imagine. And then uh, economics well, was a dual major of mine and then did a uh, a stint doing a certificate for uh, Western European studies with a with a concentration on Germany um, and thinking I was going to do a lot of international affairs. And I ended up a, from a career perspective, inverting that and doing a lot of work in D.C. for international companies. So, you know, I didn't make it to Western Europe, but uh, I'm doing a lot of work for Western European countries or companies. Uh, in the U.S. here. So it's, uh, you know, those things happen from time to time, but that's a little bit about me. Very good. And I know you and I were talking earlier about D.C. and, and living and working in Washington, D.C. and how it's kind of a uh, sort of a young person's town. And I know that uh, uh, getting back to Appalachia was something you were looking forward to doing and were able to do that, uh, coming back to Pittsburgh and being able to kind of put your roots down there. And I know that was important to you as well. Yeah, you know, it's it's when you're from the area, you like to be in the area. You want to return to the area. Uh, my wife's from here too. She also, uh, you know, is somebody that you know, we thought this would be the place to be. And I know that you, um, you know, uh, you, you understand it too. You're on the Southern end of the Appalachians and I'm here on the Northern tip. So uh, even though, uh, you know, there's a, you know, probably about a thousand miles difference between us, there's, there's a lot of things in common with, with people that are from the area. So I, you know, I, 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 I can appreciate that. Absolutely. Same here. Same here. So I wanted to go back to the to the book and ask you about uh, Warminster. And I know you talked a little bit about that uh, a moment ago, but I, I feel like anytime I, I'm reading fantasy and, and anytime I'm thinking about the genre, I think about these worlds that writers create. And when I was reading about Warminster, I, I was intrigued by this by this uh, world that you've created. Uh, I, I found that it was sort of treacherous as well many times in, as I was reading. Uh, and I think that uh, we see characters functioning and flourishing with a lot of courage uh, inside this territory. So can you tell us a little bit about, about Warminster, some of the norms and mores that kind of establish this world uh, that your characters inhabit? Sure. So uh, the, the realm itself is very large. and We're really in this first novel only taking a snapshot at the seven baronies, which is 
the kingdom of Warminster that, that, you know, embodies most of the history uh, of the realm. And, and those baronies are divided into, into seven baronies, one of which is Thronehelm, which is the, the capital of it. Uh, and the, the mysteries surrounding the adventure uh, that I think readers will find in uh, The Last Keeper begin there. Uh, and in many respects, um, the problems uh, are ancient ones that eventually come back uh, in books two, three, and four to haunt present day Warminsterians. Uh, and it's how they uh, react to those things. And so you, you know, if you're a fan of sword and sorcery, you're going to get a lot of that world building here where I've created my own magical system, borrowed, frankly, from a variety of different places. I've played Dungeons and Dragons for many years, uh, and they have one system. And if you're fans of Harry Potter, like many people that are my age are, you know, growing up with, with them, uh, you know, I think J.K. Rowling has used her own system of magic. But even if you go to any of the uh, authors like a Tolkien or, or like you mentioned before, a Martin or Brandon Sanderson or, you know, any of those folks, they all create their own world within. Uh, and so, you know, the, the novel starts with a focus on, on Warminster and the Seven Baronies and, you know, ends with a much broader scope going into uh, books two and three. And it's how the rest of the realm gets involved to stave off the the evils that are being perpetrated in Warminster against the throne. And you have a young boy in the book who I love. Uh, his name is Damus. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. D-A-E-M-U-S. Um, and he's given a gift of sight. And his gift of sight is not typically what we think of as sight. It's more of giving him an ability to have prophetic dreams. But one of the things I loved about him as a character is that he's a little bit of a reluctant hero and a, re a reluctant protagonist here, but he's got some friends and some companions who know more than he does about what's going on and what he's going to uh, experience. And not to give too much away, uh, they're willing to put a lot on the line to protect him. Uh, as a character. So can you talk a little bit about that, why they are so um, uh, ready to kind of put themselves in jeopardy, his companions, I mean, put themselves in jeopardy uh, to protect him, and why is it important to kind of make sure that uh, Damus stays safe? Yeah, so Damus, as you mentioned, I mean, he's a tweener, right? He's, he's still in his teens, his late teens, and he's going through that step of leaving boyhood to become a man. Uh, and he's, he's learning at this Cathedral of the Watchful Eye, which is uh, the, the place where all of these prophets are sent from all over the realm to get trained in a variety of, of magics, including their version of prophetic sight, which I call the Erudian sight. It's named after the ancient or the god. Uh, ancients are, are what I refer to as gods in the novels, uh, as, as the god of knowledge. And so kings and queens and emperors and other rulers around the realm use these keepers to make decisions on important matters of state, on important matters of commerce, or on important matters of defense, based on what their sight tells them. And Damus is learning to control his. But as you guessed, you know, in the beginning, uh, Damus is not just reluctant, but he also kind of looks down at himself in a variety of different ways. He's not ready to take on this mantle. And he somehow ends up with this, this Erudian sight granted to him when you know he was born, he was born blind. And a visiting stranger once touched his eyes and all of a sudden he could see, but like you mentioned, 
it wasn't just a physical site. It was this metaphysical site that allowed him to see things in the future. And so, you know, as the site in the book starts to wane for all of the keepers, as the villain returns, this fallen keeper, Grey Taurus, as he returns, uh, that site starts to go away in the kingdoms and the queendoms of the realm turn to him as the last keeper, the one that is the only one that there has uh, that site that remains. And yet, you know, as anybody that's going through that, uh, that time in their life understands that, you know, they really don't know how to control things. They're not sure how to be, uh, how to do that. And so as he's learning, other folks come to his aid, not only to help him uh, to, to harness that power, but also he's being attacked by this fallen keeper uh, who wants him dead for whatever reason. And that's something you have to find out in, in later books as to why they're kind of intertwined with one another. But I think, you know, in the case uh, of Damis here, many of the realm's heroes come to his side to help stop him from being hunted, to, to, to get him to safety. We are talking with J.D. Hilliard here on this episode of Now Appalachia. His debut novel, his debut fantasy novel is called The Last Keeper. And J.D. will come back to this uh, in just a moment in terms of the specifics of the book. But um, in preparing for the interview today, I was trying to find out uh, folks that you had worked with and folks that you knew that kind of helped you put this project together. And I came across someone named Dane Reeds. So can you tell us uh, who Dane Reeds is and, uh, uh, well, Dane Reeds, kind of what that is and, and yeah. who he is and how he helped you uh, get your book together and put together kind of from idea creation all the way down to publication? Yeah, so, so his real name is Dane Cobain. Uh, and, and Dane is an author himself, but is an author that's not necessarily one that in the past was written any kind of fantasy adventure stuff. If you look at his portfolio, you know, he writes horror novels. He's written uh, novels that are completely unrelated uh, to, to my genre. And he's also an artist. I mean, the guy, you know, has a radio show. Uh, the guy's in a band. He's one of these like free thinker, creative guys. And I got connected to him, uh, you know, through Upwork, which is a, um, you know, a, a portal through which authors that are looking for help uh, can find other people that can come on and do sub-consulting work. And in Dane's case, I introduced him to the idea of what it was uh, that I wanted to create. Uh, and he introduced me to my publisher. Uh, and, you know, uh, Gwen Gaddis, who uh, is the owner of Dragon Moon Press, uh, you know, saw a copy of what I was doing and said, Joe, I like what you've got, but understand in your genre, you don't write a one-off book. You know, fantasy right readers want to see a series. Uh, and so in order for me to get published, I had to commit to doing more than one. So right now we're, you know, I've gotten the second one, you know, in in uh, in, in editing. I got the third one about 50 percent done and I got the fourth one in outline. Um, so over the next year, we should have that first part of a four part series. All of those should be completed by this time, hopefully next year and out. Uh, for the general public. But what Dane has done is he's helped me with development editing. He, you know, he, you know, for someone that's a, a rookie author that's never been through the process, oftentimes you're, you're myopic and you're too close to your own work. And you think you're, you think you've put something in it, but when someone else reads it, they're like, I don't get this, you know, or you missed this or how these don't connect. There's a hole here. Uh, and I think he's helped me understand uh, what that was and then introduced me to, to other folks that can help me get the 
get the books done. And, and, you know, I consider him more than just my editor. He's my friend. He's been uh, incredibly helpful and, you know, understands how the industry goes. And he's an indie author. Like he does his stuff. He's, he's, you know, he's done some published, uh, like he goes through some houses for some of his work, but for the most part, he's just an independent guy. Uh, and I don't think I'd be here without him. Very good. And what got you as a writer interested in fantasy genre and writing uh, this book as a fantasy book? And also kind of, as you mentioned, developing this series and fleshing it out over three or four more books. What got you interested in writing fantasy? So, you know, when I was in fourth or fifth grade, my uh, English teacher uh, went on a long-term health sabbatical. And we were only about six weeks out, maybe five weeks out of the school year ending and the substitute teacher that came in on a permanent basis, uh, Mr. McKinney, I'll never forget it. Uh, he came in and basically turned that fourth or fifth grade class into a reading of the Hobbit and then a reading of the Lord of the Rings. And so we sat there and, you know, our quizzes became, you know, uh, things related to the books. And I just fell in love with fantasy at that point, right? You know, just listening to him read uh, and listening to the, the voice of, of J.R.R. Tolkien in, in the voice of those characters. At that point, I fell in love with it. I went home. I told my mom and my dad about, you know, how, you know, I was falling in love with this. And for Christmas, my uncle, uh, who was like a second father to me, got me a Dungeons and Dragons box set. Uh, and as a family, we started playing Dungeons and Dragons. It was the closest thing at the time that I could get to, you know, a, a, like Middle Earth. And uh, I fell in love with it. And ever since then, we've, over the years, I've been playing not only with family, but the last 20 years with with friends on, and, and as Dungeons and Dragons has morphed into, you know, edition five right now, uh, you know, I've gone along through that both, both as a player and as a dungeon master. And I've also dabbled in some other things uh, and I've gotten ideas for parts of my realm through adventures that I did as a role player or adventures that I did as a DM taking players through an, a, a campaign uh, and I've embedded those reworked them of course and embedded both you know some of the scenarios and also some of the characters inside of the Warminster series. The title of the book we're focusing on today is The Last Keeper. It's the debut fantasy novel for J.V. Hilliard and we're delighted to have him with us today uh, here on Now Appalachian. So J.V. let's go back to the book uh, for just a couple of more minutes here uh, in our time together. And, you know, something else, we talked about Damus a, a little while ago and, and kind of his role in the story and why his friends are sort of uh, standing up for him and making sure that he's safe and protected. But I also really love two characters, two female characters that you created in the story. Um, and I'm just going to ask you to talk a little bit about them. One of them is uh, the elven princess Adeline, and uh, kind of her, her champion or friend, uh, Jessamine. Uh, talk a little bit about them. And I, I love that because in, in a lot of um, classical fantasy stories, we, we don't see uh, female characters have really strong leadership roles in, in a story. Uh, they're sometimes background characters or they're sometimes the love interest that needs to be rescued, so on and so forth. But you, you give these two characters really pivotal roles in the story. Can you talk a little bit about them and, and where they fit into Damus's story and what's going on here um, in Warminster? Yeah, I sure can. So uh, like you said, I mean, I think that, you know, in this day and age, uh, especially for, for fans of, of fantasy adventure or sci-fi, um, I think it's it's important that you know women and 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 uh, uh, various races are represented 
uh, in that. I think that that's, that's just something that's expected. It's no longer a surprise when you see these things, as you read in my genre. Now it's, those things are almost expected. Uh, and in the case of Adeline, I wanted to make her a strong character. And she's in a position where she's, you know, and very few people know this in book one, except for, you know, obviously her father and, and Jessamy is she's in line to be the queen, the next coronel of the Vermilion nation. And, and Vermilion elves are one of the elves that I created for the story. And they are sort of the highest cast of elves, the elves that were left behind when their ancient Malexus went on to the Hall of the Ancients or the heavens for that matter. Uh, and as a result, all elven cultures revolve around them. And there's almost this sense of, of um, divinity around her, her race. And for, you know, for that sort of, you know, her leaving this insular, very specific, like, you know, Eldwald, where her, the capital is, where, where she is, she's never been out into the world and she's never met any of these other races. And yet everybody sort of venerates and, and, and not worships, but comes real close to worshiping these, these Vermilion Elves. And she walks out and finds out that they're just one of many, you know, and um, her love interest in the story eventually becomes Sir Ritter of Vulcaneer. Uh, and it's a bit of a trope, but, you know, Sir Ritter is of mixed blood. He's kind of like a muggle from Harry Potter. Like he, he's part human and part Raven elf. Uh, and she's not supposed to be consorting with anybody that's not Vermilion. And here he comes and she just feels this, she, you know, that she's compelled to be with him based on his actions of, of, of duty and his actions of honor and how noble she sees him. And then she starts to, to question her own society's mores, as you mentioned earlier. She wonders why that, you know, they have to be so insular. And she, she figures that other areas of the realm are going to be impacted, uh, you know, by, you know, the humans or these trollborn, as I call people of mixed blood uh, in Warminster. And so there's, there's a bit of that, but she's in a, in a power position, right? She's, you know, the, you know, the, the, the capital is going to pay attention to every word that she says. And, and when a vermilion comes to speak to them, you know, it means something really important is happening. And she was sent to solve this mystery and to help Damis. And so therefore she's in a position where people are going to be paying attention to her. And she's the ad hoc leader of this ragtag bunch of adventurers that have been like hodgepodge together to help save him and, and, and keep him safe. You know, and Jessamy's character is a little different. Like Jessamy, I kind of modeled her after my wife. She's this uh, rugged tomboy. And in, in Jessamy's case, she's a master swordswoman, right? She's the champion for this, this, this princess that needs to be protected as she wanders out into the realm. And, and so Jessamy is sort of the, the woman of wisdom, of local wisdom, the streetwise, a street smart person that whispers in her ear and tells her what's going on. But she's also an unquestioned warrior. One that's it's it's unparalleled, and and she finds her own rivals that she needs to protect Adeline from as the story goes on. But you know she's the opposite of Adeline, where Adeline is this political intelligentsia sort of figure. Jessamy is in the dirt with a sword. I'm going to fight you with blood dripping from my 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 lips, kind of of of, of, of character. And so I enjoyed writing them, and they're on two different, almost diametrically opposed. Uh, points of the axis. And it was, it's kind of fun to see how they work together. So as we finish up in our time together here today, JV, 
as readers want to find out more uh, about you, more about The Last Keeper, where can they find you out on social media and out on the World Wide Web? How can they find you and where can they get in contact with you and how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, and, sure. So where can yeah, they, they can find go to The Last Keeper? Yeah, yeah. They can go to my website, which is jvhilliard.com. Uh, there's no surprises in that one. It's pretty easy to find. Uh, there they could sign up for a newsletter and I'll keep them, you know, they'll, they'll get updates on uh, future books and, and, and the giveaways and things like that on a monthly basis. Um, I have an Instagram account, which is JV Hilliard Books, uh, Twitter account, which is at JV Hilliard Books, and my Facebook is JV Hilliard. Uh, and if they go to Amazon, they could find me by Googling The Last Keeper. Uh, I'm also on Goodreads, and I've got an audio book out. Uh, so if you're like me and you spend an inordinate amount of time traveling, or you've got a large family and you just can't put the, the book in your hands anymore like you like to, this is something you could throw on your earbuds and uh, listen to when you're on the metro. Uh, or you're on a bus somewhere, or you're just trying to get away from your family for a little bit, you know, I'll give you a little bit of downtime there. You could find me and the uh, narrator is a guy named Victor Bavine. And those who are familiar with the R.A. Salvatore um, Dark Elf trilogies will find Victor's voice. Uh, he portrays Trish Duarden and, and many of the others that are, you know, in that series. I, I brought him in because I knew that he would be um, somebody that uh, fantasy uh, readers would like to hear. Uh, and someone they would recognize right away. J.V. Hilliard has been our guest today on this episode of Now Appalachia. His debut fantasy novel is called The Last Keeper, and as we've been talking about uh, in our interview today, and as we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, uh, if you like J.R.R. Tolkien, if you like George R.R. Martin, and you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings series, or you're a fan of The Hobbit, or you're a fan of The Lord of the Rings, you are going to want to add this book to your collection, or if you're just wanting to maybe get into fantasy, and the fantasy genre for the first time as a reader or a audiobook listener, uh, this would be a great place to, to pick it up. Dragon Moon Press is the publisher. JV, congratulations. It's, it's a fantastic story. Uh, looking forward to more books in this series. And as you keep getting more books written and published, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks so much. Thanks for having us. It's been an honor spending this half hour with you. And I really appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, and I hope that your, uh, your viewers like it. As we finish up here on this episode of Now Appalachia, we want to take a moment to give a special shout out to the executive producer of Now Appalachia, as well as the executive producer of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. She does a lot of work behind the scenes to make sure these podcasts are produced and readily available to consumers across all of the podcast platforms that you're familiar with and that you like to listen to. So thanks so much, uh, Pam, for all the work that you do there. We want to remind you that this is also a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. Listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. 